Hello and welcome to Game Like Training Radio, where we're helping you understand learning and practice more efficiently. I'm one of your hosts, Cordy Walker. And I'm your co-host, Matthew Cook. And today we are joining Peter Arnott and Gray McDowell, two incredible coaches who are going to talk to us about constraints-based coaching and what we know to be the dynamical systems theory. So these two are doing an incredible job with this, and uh, they're going to show us, talk to us about some skills testing and how it relates to this theory that they are promoting. And I must apologize in advance because I'm going to be leaving around halfway through, so you won't hear from me towards the end. I'll, uh, I'll let Cordy take over there. And if you are very interested in this and you're enjoying the content, what we're putting out, you can head over to Golf Science Lab and sign up to our game like training space over there. For sure. We're in the midst of the course right now. It's been quite fun. We're in, in week two at the moment. Uh, and if you want to learn about maybe catching the recordings of the next course, golfsciencelab.com slash GLT, get on the notification list and we'll let you know. Otherwise, this is a super fun conversation with with Pete and Graham. Great guys and some really good messages to pay attention to here. All right, let's get into it. All right, excited to be here with Pete and Graham. They are two guys in Scotland who have really adopted a fantastic approach to looking at learning through kind of an ecological dynamics model and constraint-based coaching. And today we're going to chat a little about that, chat a little about skills tests and learning in general. Pete, Graham, how's it going? Bad, yeah, up? good. Thanks, Cody. Awesome. So, if people haven't like heard of constraint-based coaching or seen some of the some of the stuff that y'all have posted, what does constraint-based coaching mean? And I'll throw that to to Graham first for more of like a high level. But like, what does that mean? Um, what does it mean? It really is it's a it's a framework that um, is inclusive of the environment, the individual, uh, and, a, and a specific task. So it's making sure those those things are combined it it, it, uh, it was a model first designed by Carl Newell or Carl Newell um, and it just looked at the kind of confluence of constraints combining to um, uh, create goal-directed behavior and how that you could change change constraints if you were to change up any of these constraints then behavior uh, inevitably changes so you could think of it Think of it like if you change the mix you you change the outcome so the the, the mix of the different constraints that are impinging on a performer at any one time. Um, the coach's job within that framework then is to uh, look at how the performer's uh, doing, how they're, how they're, where they're wanting to go, be aware of the constraints impinging on them, and change them up in order to try and uh, change the performer's behaviour. So it could be any number of things that you're trying to change. Uh, it could be psychological stuff. It could be structural stuff in terms of the, the, the player's motor pattern. So it's really it's really based on that. It's theoretically underpinned by things like dynamical systems theory and ecological psychology. More interested in where you do things rather than what you do. So you know, I like the term "ask ask not what you do, ask where you do it" is a better predictor of uh, future behaviour than anything else. And that if you know where the performer is uh, and the type of space the performer is inhabiting, then you can make pretty decent predictions about what the outcome is going to be. So that's that's kind of the the framework behind this. And now I'm going to throw it to you, Pete. So in, in case people don't know, Graham is more of the academic. He's a lecturer <laughs> and Pete is the coach. So I'm going to throw it. Pete, give me the practical example of like what this might look like in the real world. What it might look like in the real world. Uh, I think touching on more like what we're going to cover today, 
Graham and I really cover a lot of uh, the kind of representative learning environments and e- effective learning. So uh, emotion-laden training environments that, that represent performance. So a snapshot of that, Graham. Yeah, a snapshot of that in, in real life. Yeah. Is what you mean. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's yeah. trying to, I would say it's trying to uh, create environments that the performer recognises. Yeah. Uh, so it recognises in relation to the level of performance that they're playing in, and therefore it gives them an opportunity to refine their, their skills in uh, realistic situations as, as much as anything. I mean, Pete's saying effective learning, um, and out, out of that you have what's called hot cognition and cold cognition, and uh, hot cognition being uh, the stuff that's really emotional. And uh, if you think about the the things that you most remember in your life, the experiences over the last 20 years that you most remember, they'll be the ones that are the most emotional to you. You know, and cold cognition would be the kind of stuff that, uh, yeah, happened, but you don't remember it. Um, so we, we would say ineffective practice is the stuff you don't remember, and that's cold cognition. And effective practice is the, or effective practice is the uh, emotion-laden, hot cognition stuff that you you really remember. And hopefully by practicing in that environment, you develop some strategies that you're going to be able to use and transfer to the performance context. So uh, smashing balls in a driving range, block practice, uh, meaningless skills tests, where you're just going through the motion, very much cold cognition, practice where it's uh, really emotional and you're kind of getting frustrated and you're nervous and you're apprehensive and you're all these things, then that's more a hot cognition context. Yeah, and uh, even just uh, to add to that, the two marry together as well. So, you know, you, your, your skills test like the Trackman Combine, you could potentially say that, that, that there's some hot cognition in there. There's, there's some emotions that, that represent performance. However, the, the actual game uh, or the skills test doesn't represent, uh, you know, it doesn't transfer to the, the golf course. I had an interesting conversation with a tour pro in Australia on uh, Sunday, and he was telling me how, you know, he scored brilliantly in the combine and then went out and missed a cut by miles the next day. You know, and, and to me, that, that tells a story in itself. That really does strike a chord with me. I've been thinking a lot about this most recently, about trackman combines and these skills tests and skills skills challenges that a lot of coaches have been trying to put together. And, and for the most part, as much as they're all in with, all with good intentions, they're, they're really not, for the most part, representative of the real performance environment so i you know it makes sense and i love that it's not necessarily what you do but where you do it because traditional we know and you know as well as 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 we do that you know most practice nowadays is it beating balls on a range is just not representative of what the environment that the golfers are going to be placed in when they're competing and that you know there's just like your example there Peter with a with a tall player. I knew a chap that was actually ranked number one with Trackman Combine for a certain space of time. It just so happened that at that particular moment in his playing career, he wasn't doing all that great. You know, so you've got he's got the almost creating like a false sense of confidence with his abilities because the it doesn't represent the real performance environment. I I'm really interested to know what you guys think further on this topic of skills testing and trying to find out where golfers are, are at with their game with their skills because i think a lot of players that go to a coach for the first time 
you know, the, the coach tries to assess them in, in their own unique ways. But what, you know, my question to you guys is, what is a better way of doing it? Pete, I'll let you pick that up. <laughs> just that. Because we're not standing here, and it'll just be two seconds. <laughs> what is a, a better way of doing that? We don't really, I don't really test them. I, I go and watch them play golf and... And I'm not massive in stats either. It's it's it, Graham and I definitely we refined this over the years, and we we stolen this off the uh, New Zealand All Blacks. But we 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 create our games around the principles of play, you know. So it depends on the level, but you know, if you're you're working with elite amateurs or you know, pros that are aspiring <coughs> to get to a higher level, you know, what what are the principles of play? To me, you drive the ball reasonably well <coughs> uh, and long. Graham would probably, you know, we, we're a wee bit in disagreement with us, but, you know, long irons depend on the player and you know, five to 20 foot putts, longer putts as well, and 10 to 20 yard pitches because, you know, these are, these are the kind of putts and pitches that you're going to see the most. If you're good at these areas, and obviously that's dependent on the player, depending on how long or short they are, you know, you're going to get a pretty good player that emerges out of that. So I frame a lot of our games around these principles of play and then don't really worry about too much about stats and, and skills tests and, and very much uh, effective learning. You're putting them, you're getting similar emotions. We like to see players getting annoyed in, in training, you know, really. And if the top performer, if a guy comes in and we know he's the top performer, uh, you know, performance-wise on the golf course, and he's not consistently will it w- winning our uh, in our in training. Then that that says does quite a lot that, that the training's flawed. That's really cool. So, say that again. I want to reemphasize that. So if you see someone that's a top performer on the golf course, but they don't do well in your training, that the training yeah. is is flawed. Fundamentally flawed, yeah, because because it does. It's not transferable, is it? Yeah. I just pick up a couple of things there, guys. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, and, and yeah, just just on that and backtracking a wee bit to Matt's original question about you know what would be a, I think Matt said what would be a good test of skill type of thing and what would be the uh, components of that and uh, what what I would say is that it's useful looking at it as a a, a time and space issue because if you think about a space issue would be well where do you do where do you do the thing so that's kind of important and that's the context isn't it so. Um, the space where you train, if it's contextually relevant, i.e. it's representative, then that's first of all a good thing. But another thing you're going to see uh, quite clearly, and it, re- and, it, and it relates to the point you were talking about there in, in terms of uh, the superior performers should excel. Okay, So time is a major factor. And the more that you, you reduce time in terms of the time you run, run the activity for, the more likely the, the data is going to be skewed. Okay, Because... Uh, yeah, time is, is more a friend of the inferior performer than it is a superior performer. So what I'll give you some examples of that. If you know, if a, if a really, let's say, a lower league football team goes 1-0 up five minutes into the game and there's still 85 minutes to go, that's a bad thing because there's enough time there for the superior performers to come through in the end. Um, and I relate it a little bit to this argument. You'll have heard this argument that um, you know, if you're going to play a tour player, you'd be better playing them on a par three than a par five. Yeah, you've heard that argument? You know, the kind of uh, shots to the hole type argument. Yeah, yeah. So we've heard that argument. I would really put, put, give that as an example then. But if you played a tour player over 18 par threes, would you beat them? 
No. You no. yeah. You, <laughs> no. You wouldn't, would you? So it's a it's a, almost a a non-argument that to say, well, you'd rather play a you know if you're going to try and beat a tour player, you'd rather play them on a par three than you would on a par five because they've got a superior long game. So you'd have no chance on a par five, but you might have a chance on a par three. But that doesn't account for the time aspect. Okay, so the time aspect would have to be inclusive of playing 18 holes and the superior performer would come through. Even if you won the first par three or, or even the second and third par three, eventually the superior performer would wear you down. Um, so, you know, we like to think about skill more as how is skill distributed across representative time frame. And when you, dis- when you, when you give a superior performer the right time frame, typically they'll come through in the end. Sometimes they run out of time. You know, so if McElroy makes a bad start in a tournament, he might run out of time, whereas if he'd had an extra nine holes, he might have went on and won the tournament. But they'll get pretty close. Yeah. They'll, get, yeah. they'll always get pretty close. Sometimes they just run out of time. And McElroy starts well. He typically win a tournament because he doesn't have so much to, to claw back. So if you're going to set up a, a, a test of skill that's really representative, you need to think about time and space. The time that the activity is distributed across. So I like to think about skill as... Uh, how are you distributing your skill across a particular time frame? But most skill tests are just a snapshot in time. But we'll just we'll just do something. We'll just capture some data, and that data can be really skewed because the superior performer can start badly. But the very nature of being a superior performer is you have attributes that, that help you to to dig in and, and stay in there and grind it out and come through in the end. And we see that all the time when we're running things. So. We've talked about this before that we, do, we really like to run things over sort of four, five, six hour blocks because that's what it's like in a tournament. And that really allows the skill to be distributed properly and come through in the end. And when you do that, your superior performers outperform your inferior performers. Um, if you do a, a simple putting test, you know, hold 10 putts or go around the clock and put some putts in, you know, I might outperform a tour player in that. Because it's a, just a snapshot, it's just a slice in time. It's not really representative. So any skill test that I can be a tour player in is a bad test of skill. That makes a lot of sense. So skills test, like that's one of the biggest faults is that the time is not representative then. Correct. Did you say that? Okay. Massively. So do you use skills tests at all in general or no? No, never. <laughs> The the test for you to see if someone is improving or not is scores during performance on the course. Yes. No. <laughs> well, <laughs> there we go. Well, well, here's the thing. Sorry. I mean, I I would largely agree, but here's here, here's the thing about scores improving again is typically quite flawed because you could shoot two seventy twos and make the cut, and you could go next week and shoot two seventies and miss the cut. Over a period of time, Graham. Sorry, should I? Yeah, but it's only relative to the conditions on the day and what other people are doing. And and, and golf is such a variable thing. It's one of the few games that is played on completely variable playing spaces. And it's not like football or snooker or pool or basketball or anything else that has pretty well-defined playing conditions and playing spaces and parameters. And these things might be more measurable, just like physiological sports are more measurable. You know, the... Uh, the rate at which you metabolize oxygen is a good parameter for uh, working out how well you're going to do in the Tour de France because it's you know pretty mechanistic in that sense. But golf is so variable. Conditions, length of courses, grounds, textures, uh, different countries, all, all of these kind of things. So I really think the score is very specific to the day 
and what's a good score in the day uh, might actually make your stroke average go up, but it, it might actually be a really good score on the, on, on the day. So uh, yeah, I'm kind of, that's where I am on that. If you're enjoying this episode, head over to golfsciencelive.com slash better training and get four videos that we've put together to help you have a more game-like training learning environment. We'll dive into the specific things that you can do to get more out of the time that you spend on the range. Golfsciencelive.com slash better training. All right, let's get back to it. So Pete, when you're working with a student then, how do you know if they're getting better like how do you know if what you're working on how do you know if if these games and this learning that they're doing is actually improving them you know what do you look at like what are some of those factors to me like obviously graham's gone far more in depth than that but you know just over a period of time are they improving are you know how are they how are they doing in relation to the fields consistently are they improving from from last year and feedback feedback from the players you know is this training working do you feel you know do you feel like that it's beneficial to you and, and consistently i think graham's going to touch this and on this in part of his phd is is this training transferable and anecdotally we can definitely say that yeah it is but uh i just maybe and if you come back to me three four years time i'll be using data and collecting data on players but at the moment i just don't see anything out there that that really creates a kind of snapshot of what we're trying to get and you know it's a question I asked uh, I was speaking to Mark Bull about you know what data is there is there any data packages and I put this out on the podcast any data packages that actually actually collect what the player sees in front of them at that point in time because I think that's huge I think you know if you go back to Mark Bull's studies of the how movement changes uh, on the golf course compared to the driving range and the movement changed specifically for holes that the player didn't like. The more I coach and watch players out in the golf course is generally golf co- golf holes that, that don't suit their eye, you know, in jargon terms, but that, that, that they, they struggle on. So I, I don't know if that answers the question or not, but... No, it, it does. And, and so a lot of, you know, people might be familiar with this paradigm of, all right, I'm working on my driving, right? So I'm going to look at my driving accuracy for nine holes, or I'm going to go on the range and set up a fairway and, you know, it's 20 yards wide and, and see how many balls I can get in, in the fairway, you know, whatever it is, right? Like that's a, a pretty traditional thing right now. You maybe do it every month just to track your progress. So what would you suggest? Like, what's the alternative? Or it could be anything, right? So like Graham said, the putts, like around a clock, right? So this, you know, this month I go do, you know, a putting skills test. And then I'm going to do that in a month to see if I've improved my skills after working on some different things, right? Like, what is the alternative to doing that? Uh, I suppose the easy option is go find players that are as good as you or better than you and play them for money. That's the easy option. Games, top of the head. You know, take me a while to describe them, but we can post a couple up if you want uh, after this podcast. Okay, for sure. According to you, specifically meaning there, you know, somebody's struggling with their drive, their driving. What, what should they do? Well, I, I'm just saying, like a, a traditional skills test model of like, I, you know, I'm going to do an, an initial assessment right now, right? Or I'm going to do this test to figure out where I'm at with skill X, right? Could be driving, putting, et cetera. Yeah. And then I'm going to work on that for a month and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to do another, you know, assessment or test to see if my skills improved or not. Right. Like, I think that's a pretty traditional model. Yeah. 
Yeah. What would your suggestion be in, in alternative to that? Just skip that altogether? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just wouldn't do it. Frankly, I, I don't think there's any point in test. It's not, it's not a test of skill if it's something that is, uh, if you're doing that in an environment that is removing you from the constraints that are impinging on you in performance, of performances where you are referencing your improvement to. You, you, so, so you know, you're, you're going to see people who improve their stats in in almost every area of the game at times, and yet, you know, not necessarily they're not necessarily lower their score at times because it's um, it's about putting the whole thing together ultimately. So, I, I don't think kind of going to the range and hitting ten shots to see how many you put in the fairway and then come back and uh, you know you have that statistical phenomenon of regression to the mean. Whereas, if typically if you go out and you know, two out of ten in the middle of the fairway. Next time you go out, you're going to improve on that. And and likewise, if you go and put nine out of ten in the fairway, next time you're going to go out, you're going to get less than that. So, and there's a there's a major luck factor in that, like holding ten putts in a row from from a given distance. It's, it really comes down to to luck. What's if you if, if you wanted to look at it like that, it'd be more important to say, well, two drives out of ten in a given area is very good if everybody else was only putting one drive in 10 in a given area. So it's relative to other factors, isn't it? It can't just be taken in isolation because in isolation, it doesn't make sense. Nothing makes sense. So if you go and put seven drives out of 10 in, in, in a given area, but the, your five other closest competitors all put eight out of 10 in that area, then you, you were behind them in those, if that's your measure of performance. So again, it's, it's not just testing skill in non-contextualized environments. It's also just isolating things like that and, and realizing that, well, that's not really how things work, is it? Because if it did, well, then you'd have to say, well, let's go and do this. Let's have, uh, okay, we've had three drives out of 10 in that, that given area. Everybody else averaged uh, one drive. So that's great. Uh, on that day, you know, your, your skill was better than all of these people. So it just doesn't add up, Cordy, I don't think, when she starts kind of looking at it in terms of, um, let's go and just test a bunch of things here to get a number so we can go and work on it. Well, as I say, that's kind of just taking something in isolation and it really, for, for, for us, distorts the, the meaningfulness of what you're, uh, of the data that you're collecting. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I like that. We're not isolating specific skills or a specific stat. And both of you have mentioned now, like, looking at what other players are doing or, or playing against someone of yeah. a similar skill or better skill like is comparing yourself i don't know if that's the right word but it, working with someone else is that the only way to see how difficult the environment is or, or why do you guys bring that up of comparing yourself or seeing how other people are doing well because that defines performance levels you know you, you, people will typically find their level won't they so you you'll not be playing on the pga tour right now because it's not your level so typically people have levels that they're, they're playing in and sometimes you know you're playing 10% above or 10% below if you like but you're still uh, able to compete in that particular area it's the very nature of the game it's a it's a sport by its very nature that it's uh, comparative to what other people are doing only two-fifths of the competitors make the cut every week in a tour event so three-fifths don't make the cut and that's a comparison of your score to their score over a given time frame and it comes back to that, that time element of it, you've got uh, there is a specific time. It's you know in a game of football, if you like, or anything else, you might have ninety minutes. 
and that's a specific time. Well, you have a specific time in golf as well. You've got 36 holes to make the cut, and that's a time frame as well. And at the end of that 36 holes, a comparison is made to how you've done to the rest of the field, and, and then it's decided what you're going to be doing for the next two days. So I don't see any value in working in isolation and just taking yourself off and thinking, well, as long as I'm improving these metrics and uh, in isolation, then I'm getting better. Well, no, you're not, because you don't know how well everybody else is doing until you're up against them. For sure. So playing at your level and you're either playing 10% above it or 10% below it. I, I resonate with that. And then my next question is that, you know, if, if we're looking at, you know, the level that we're at is, is how do we, how do we get to the next level without just, you know, potentially being in just one of those ups, you know, we're just like playing slightly better than our, than our, than our average. <laughs> I mean, that's a tough one. That's a great question. And I think that that question is absolutely at the heart of a philosophical approach that, that uses the ecological dynamics framework because a framework that's based on your capacity to adapt, um, you know, you know the human capacity uh, for adaptation to the constraints in its environment and that um, your, your environment will change you and and you have to adapt pretty quick, survival of the fittest, if you like. If you don't they kind of adapt or die a little bit, isn't it? If you don't adapt quickly to the conditions of tour golf, then you'll no longer be a tour player. And therefore, the, the better you are prepared for that before you get to that level, then uh, then all the better. And it's a bit like what, what kind of Pete's looking at in his, uh, in his, in his master's project is, well, the, the more we can find out what it's like out there, the more we can design training, perform uh, training environments to uh, expedite that adaptation process by manipulating things earlier. So the player has already started to adapt to what he's going to find or she's going to find uh, in that future performance context. So you need to know a little bit about the future. Do you have something to add to that, Pete? Or I've got a question. Absolutely. I, no, no, absolutely. Yeah, delving a little bit deeper into, into what we talked at the World Scientific Golf Conference about uh, the stuff that I've collected from European Tour players and basically we characterized uh, amateur golf as... as a stable environment and a professional European tour golf is an unstable environment and the the, the, the amateur golf didn't prepare them for, for professional golf. So that's why Graham's talking about what the future state is. You know, if the learning yeah. environment was was uh, appropriate, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Well, so I think that the key thing there, Pete, is as a performance metric or a sense of what's going on in your development is that as you experience stability, then no no adaptation is taking place. Okay, yeah, but yeah. there's no biolog there's no biological stress that's um, expressing any change in the organism to, to to help you there. You've reached that point of equilibrium, and you know as I say, equilibrium is really the death of development. So once uh, once you feel that stability, then you need to get out of that environment pretty quickly. So, so what we're talking about stability-wise for amateurs is just to delve in a little bit deeper. Is you know, the the as the golf courses are too short. This is mainly UK-based golf courses too short that they grow upon uh, playing full elite amateur golf. They're not similar to tour level as in their short, tight golf courses, links golf courses. Very not as much stroke play, more match play. Travel to tournaments a lot earlier. Far more time. Familiarity, Pete. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and just With competitors and yeah, courses just, and everything else. And then you know, as you've seen in 
uh, the, the talk, Cordy, went through a kind of tournament where a tour pro described to me and it was complete chaos. And I think it's creating a, an environment that is more towards that for, for, for kids that are, are striving towards European tour level so that they're, they're ready. And uh, the feedback we've had from a few guys this year is that, that they have been prepared, even just as simple as just training them uh, more to hit long irons consistently, you know, because that's, that's the environment they're going to face. And a couple of guys in my interview saying when they were playing mini tour and, and amateur golf, you could have taken the six, five and four iron out of the bag. So when we have someone that's reached a level, when they've found stability somewhere, whether that's in, they're in amateur golf, let's say they're an older amateur and they've just been playing at the same level for, for years, or they're on the challenge tour, the web.com tour, right? And they've found stability and they're, they're playing there. How does someone go to that next level? What are some of the characteristics that happen when someone goes from being maybe a, a top you know, regional amateur or top local amateur to being a, a top national amateur or for going from the web.com to the PGA tour. Like what are some of the characteristics of someone that is able to, to make that leap uh, in performance? I, d- I don't think you can pinpoint one, you know, I love the saying a case study of one. There's no one set characteristic. It's a good question though. You know, what, and asking somebody who's taken that leap, you know, what, what changed and, very often they, they will tell you that you know what what happened is I started to become more adjusted to the conditions in my environment. Um, so if you take somebody, you know, this year who's first year Europe pro or whatnot, they've managed to get themselves to that that level and their performances start to get better as the, the year goes on. That you know that's an ad, an indication of adaptation to that particular environment. And if they adapt well enough, they'll finish high enough up in that particular level to graduate to the next level and then the process of adaptation kicks in again and then hopefully if they adapt uh, sufficiently enough they then graduate to the next level and then eventually graduate to the level that you can't graduate anymore and then it's a race to the bottom if you like it's this gradual degradation of their i don't know if that's the right word i can't imagine it is uh degrading if you like of their skill where things will start to go back the way and you you see that don't you you see that uh, as soon as a performer is um, no longer striving and adapting, that there's only one way their performance can go, and that's backwards. And that happens to an athlete at a certain point in, in their, their career. If you like, there's nowhere left for them to go, and there's only one way they can go, and that's backwards. And Nicholas said he stopped winning tournaments when he stopped getting nervous. You know, if you think about nerves in terms of what that's doing to you biologically, then there's there's something in that, and you know you've heard the stories of the old sort of tour pros that they they only wanted to win enough money, you know, to buy themselves a ranch or a you know a mansion or something like that. And once they'd won that, then that's what they they, they were striving to do. And so so you'll see this point in every top performer's career where it ends, and they're no longer striving for that, you know, adaptation and new level of performance, and therefore they'll just gradually fade away until something perhaps re-energizes them again and, and they're out there and they're learning and they're adapting again. So let's leave some folks with uh, a concrete idea of kind of what they can do as a general framework. And you started, Graham, talking about hot cognition and cold cognition. And my guess is that a lot of people have fallen into some type of cold cognition when it comes to their learning or even when it comes to their performance because they're just in the same routines, whether it's a coach or a player that's listening. 
you know, what are some of the best ways to help people get back to that hot cognition or, it, you know, throwing instability into their environment to, to get them, you know, thinking differently and, and acting a little differently? Like, what are some of the things that people can, can do around that concept? I guess, you know, become, become film seekers, if you like, go out and find things that excite them, scare them a little bit, take themselves out of the comfort zone a little bit and force that condition onto them. And it's, I mean, psychologists have talked about it for decades, if not centuries, haven't they, about uh, the comfort zone and finding that space out with your your comfort zone. And I think it's as simple as that. I think it's, you know, find a new environment and learn to adapt it. And, you know, I've, I've posted the, the link about uh, Rodney Mullen probably 20 times on Twitter now, and he, he was the uh, skateboarder, right? Yeah, Rodney Mullen, I think, or Rodney Mullins. And, I think that's uh, right. Yeah, and he pioneered lots of stuff, you know, like ollies and whatnot, popping ollie and all these kind of things. And he just simply said whenever, he, whenever he'd kind of ran out of ideas and he wanted to learn something new, he just sought out a new environment and learned to adapt it. So that's like, you know, sort of terrains and areas and spaces that, he didn't know how to negotiate on a skateboard and he'd have to go and he'd have to make a lot of mistakes and, and fail and hurt himself. But out of that, new stuff would uh, emerge and develop. And I think you could apply that pretty widely. I think you can look at that in terms of, you know, who am I playing golf with? Where am I playing golf? What am I playing for, if you like? Um, I guess people like Phil Nicholson and all these guys have managed to keep that sort of th thrill-seeker element pretty fresh in their makeup and uh, to, to an extent that's um, helped the process greatly. So, yeah, I think there's a bit of thrill-seeking in there. Uh, you know, you, you hear that quite a lot in very successful people. They go looking for the next uh, adventure, if you like. Anything to add to that, Pete? If you want to talk about from a, even just to give you an example, a couple of weeks ago where a parent comes to me and he's, he's got problems where his daughter uh, playing on the golf course, our behaviour's quite poor. And my first question was, you know, what tees is she playing off? And she was playing off the, the ladies' tees quite far back, complete beginner. And uh, what equipment she's playing with. Checked her equipment, equipment was okay. And just took her out in the golf course and instead of going from 200, 300 yards, we just put her to 50 yards and gave her a little game, you know, and made her come up with her own par and it's a simple game talked about it before you know if you get a birdie you move back 10 yards get a bogey move forward 10 yards and the parent came up to me the next day the father came up to me the next day in the, the parking lot and, and said eh, his daughter refused to play the game for the first hole and the behaviour was terrible because she was hitting you know five six three woods you know to, to about 150 yards and then he managed to persuade her to play the, the game for the rest of the, the round and he said she was loved it and got back to 140 yards and her behaviour was exemplary. So I think uh, I think flipping that, if you if the challenge point's too difficult, then then it's easing off a little bit as well. Anything to add to that, guys, Graham? I'll echo that, Pete. So I was over there and Scott, just a bit of a backstory. I've, I was in Scotland for a month and spent a bunch of time with these guys. So I've, uh, I've, what would be the right word? Adopted, kind of stolen a lot of their ideas and info and like have just kind of incorporated into the way that I think now because it's, it's fantastic. 
And so I, I've been back in the States just playing golf with some buddies uh, just for fun because we're just having a good time. And one of the games I suggested was that game of moving, moving forward and backwards with the tees. And so we started on, I think, the second from the back tees. And, you know, by, by about hole, man, what hole was it? It was probably by hole seven. We we're all on the very front tees. And I think there were like six tee boxes there. Um, <laughs> and we were like, wow, I need to think about this a little differently now. And, you know, it's just, it's a net, getting a new perspective, just that small thing of like playing around with where you tee off from. It might not seem that big, but just changing that very common thing that you've become used to is I, oh, I always play from the back or I always or play from the middle and changing it up will give you a totally different perspective and, and make you think differently. And I definitely, you know, I, I think hot cognition because you, you have to think, you know, when you're moving around and you're not just teeing off from the same place all the time. So anyways, yeah. just echoing that with a, a story. I think that's a good one. And I come back to the uh, point of over-specialization as well at, at times where people become specialists at playing at their own course with their buddies, you know, their regular playing partners. And then you you do anything to change that. And then they're, they're no longer the golfer that they, they were. So I would really encourage people to um, not over-specialize and, you know, try and change who you're playing with, try and play different courses and different competitions if you if you can do that. And the more you you settle into a you know familiar routine or pattern, the more you're becoming kind of stabilized into that uh, particular context. And the less likely you are less likely you are to be able to adapt your skills uh, when when needed. So we like our young golfers and, and developing players to be playing different courses, different conditions, different tournaments, different times of day, and you know, with different competitors all the time. So you really become you really become used to change. And not over specialized into a particular particular situation. So more diversification within specialization. If you're specializing as a golfer, well at least diversify that experience so that you are being challenged to continually adapt and, and therefore develop the um and develop the competencies to do that. It's just creating uh, you know golfers and performers that adapt really well to all kind of scenarios, not you know, kind of the anti-fragile exactly. golfer in a sense. Exactly. Yeah. Brilliant, guys. I'm sure we could probably chat about this uh, for another handful of hours, <laughs> but we'll have to save that for another time. This has been really, really good. People should definitely follow you on Twitter. What are the what are the handles for you guys? So people can connect. Uh, for me, Peter on at golf. Yeah, for me, Graham McDowell. Perfect. <laughs> we'll link it up. We'll link people up to check it out. Is there any kind of any question that you guys want to ask people? Like, is there anything that you would want to know from people or any kind of call to actions for people that are listening as, as we wrap? Yeah, maybe share your ex experiences of um, when you think you have done, you, you have taken part in an activity that has definitely made you better. And likewise, can you pinpoint any activities that you feel, well, you know, I do quite a lot of this thing and, I don't, and it doesn't seem to make me any better? And uh, what are those things? That's really interesting. Perfect. Well, we'll definitely, um, definitely tweet, tweet at Graham, tweet at Peter with that question. Peter, anything from you or, or do you echo that one? Yeah, I echo that one. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Sounds good, guys. Well, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for, uh, for hopping on and, and sharing. Appreciate it. Cheers, Cody. Thanks, Cody. Thanks for having us on.